Turn with me, if you will, to uh, the book of Acts once again and to the first chapter. Acts chapter 1. While you're turning there, also turn to the Lord for his help tonight. So, Father, we do thank you for the cross. Thank you for forgiveness, full and free in Jesus. And thank you that as forgiven children, we can now come to your word and learn and hear and sit at your feet. We pray that we would do that tonight, that we would sit at your feet, hear your word, and believe and obey. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. We began our studies in this book of Acts, of course, on Sunday morning, and we noticed uh, its author, its title, its historicity, and its general outline, just sort of some basic introductory things. And then we gave particular attention to Jesus' prophetic instructions in verses 7 and 8. It is not for you to know times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. It's a grand design that God has for his people and for the world. And I hope that you've already begun this week seeking the Spirit's power for gospel witness and looking for opportunities to put it into action. But the disciples in those early days, as we read last week, were not quite ready to hit the streets with the gospel. They needed to wait. There were still some things that they needed to see and to do and to experience in order to be the powerful witnesses that they became. And we're going to begin to see those things unfold tonight in the latter portions of chapter one and then carry over into chapter two as well. And what I want to do tonight is to take this latter two-thirds or so of the chapter in three separate servings tonight, three courses, if you will, to our spiritual meal. And we'll begin then just by reading the first three verses, verses nine through eleven, which we might label ascension and return. Ascension and return. Verse nine And after he had said these things about being witnesses to the remotest part of the earth, after he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. They also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. Thinking about Jesus' ascension and his return here. And these verses teach us some things, do they not, about who Jesus is? Not just who Jesus was when he walked on the face of this earth, but these verses teach us actually who Jesus is even today. First of all, in verses 9 through 11, we learn where Jesus is. He was taken up into a cloud, we were told in verse 9, but where beyond that? Well, this Jesus, the angel said in verse 11, has been taken up from you into heaven. 
Jesus today is in heaven. When he had made purification of sins, we're told in Hebrews 1.3, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. It's the same thing we read here in Luke's account of the ascension, isn't it? This Jesus has been taken up from you into heaven. So the spirit of Jesus has been sent to the earth. We said that last week, right? The Holy Spirit has come to minister to and among us. But the person of Jesus has ascended to the Father's right hand, there to make intercession for us, there to prepare a place for us, there to uphold all things by the word of his power. And though it may be obvious that Jesus is there, I just want to mention it to you because it's a comforting thought to remember that Jesus is on his throne, even now, caring for his people controlling his world but as i say that's probably not a new or a surprising thought to many of us perhaps we already knew where jesus is today but there may be a little bit more confusion when we ask the question of who jesus is today when we think of jesus earthly ministry we understand that this jesus was fully human right he had flesh like ours he had a nature like ours yet without sin he was tempted in all things as we are yet without sin jesus in his days on earth was a man fully human but the question is is he still that is he still a man now that he has ascended into heaven and i say there may be a little more confusion about that question so what's the answer Well, we have to first of all say that in those days between Jesus' resurrection and ascension, Jesus was obviously still human. Yes, his resurrected body seemed to have some supernatural qualities attached to it. For instance, in John chapter 20, he was able to suddenly appear before his disciples seemingly out of nowhere. And yet Jesus did still clearly have a human body because in that same chapter, Thomas, you remember, placed his hand in the wounds and in Luke 24 Jesus ate broiled fish with his disciples so Jesus had a human body a visible touchable body even after his resurrection he was still human just like us in fact the disciples ability to touch his physical human body was surely among the many convincing proofs that Luke mentioned back in verse 3 Jesus was still human when he met with his disciples over the course of those few weeks between the ascension and the resurrection. And that's where we are here in Acts 1, isn't it? Jesus is still human when we arrive in this chapter. So this Jesus, verse 11, who has been taken up from you into heaven, was taken up into heaven as a human. Now that may be hard for us to wrap our minds around. How can a human physical body exist in an ethereal, celestial place like heaven. How can that work? After all, when we die and go to heaven, we will go there absent from the body, 2 Corinthians 5. And we will remain absent from the body until Jesus returns and raises our dust from the grave to live in a new earth. And yet Jesus is not absent from his body. His body has already risen from the grave And it was in his physical human body that he ascended into heaven. In other words, Jesus is still one of us. He is still fully human like you are. Still able to understand our frame in a very personal way. And I hope that's encouraging to you. And says the angel, this Jesus, verse 11, 
who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you've watched him go into heaven. He will return. And when he does so, he will come in just the same way as you've watched him go, with the clouds and with a physical body. Isn't that what John foretold in the first chapter of Revelation? Quoting Daniel in the first part of this sentence, he says, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him. In other words, Jesus' return is not going to be sort of a nebulous spiritual occurrence as though if we all just learn to love each other, the spirit of Jesus will reign in us and the essence of Christ will have returned to the earth and the world will be a wholly different place. That's not the return of Jesus. Now, it is true that we will all someday love each other perfectly and the world will be a wholly different place. But those things will happen as a result of Jesus coming in just the same way the disciples saw him leave in Acts 1-9, physically, bodily, to the earth to usher in a new world. And while we're thinking about it, let's just pause and say what a wonderful world that will be when he comes again. This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come. And when he does, Isaiah 66, the wolf and the lamb will, Isaiah 65, I should say, the wolf and the lamb will graze together and the lion will eat straw like the ox and dust will be the serpent's food. They will do no evil or harm in all my holy mountains, says the Lord. Revelation 21 And God himself will be among them, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death, there will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And then Revelation 22, there will no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his bondservants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and there will no longer be any night. And they will not have need of the light of a lamp nor the light of the sun because the Lord God will illumine them and they will reign forever and ever. This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come and these things will be. So that's the first helping of tonight's meal. Jesus' ascension and his return. But then the second thing from verses 12 through 14 we'll call waiting and watching. Waiting and watching. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. When they had entered the city, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. That is Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. These all with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. Waiting and watching. Waiting and watching for what? Well, for what the Father had promised, verse 4. That's what the apostles were doing here. They're waiting and watching for the promise of the Holy Spirit. And I just want us to note well and to imitate two particular characteristics of their waiting and watching. The first is their obedience. Their obedience. Why did the apostles return to Jerusalem in verse 12? 
And why evidently did these others join them there? And why did they stay there for several days without going anywhere else? Well, because that's exactly what Jesus told them to do in verse 4, isn't it? Gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave, to, not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised. They stayed in Jerusalem because that's what he told them to do. And I find that very obvious, but very instructive, just the same. Obedience is almost always obvious. And yet, how many times do we not do it? How many times do we think that we know better than God? How many times do we have a clear command from God like the disciples had here And yet we think that surely the circumstances I am in right now probably make it okay for me to just bend things a little bit. Some of us might be doing that even right now. Some of us might know exactly what God requires of us in a certain area. And the commandment may be no less clear than the command not to leave Jerusalem in verse 4. And yet that's precisely what we're doing. We're leaving Jerusalem, as it were. We're looking at stuff that we shouldn't be looking at. We're being dishonest in business. We're ignoring the Lord's day or robbing God of tithes and offerings. We're gossiping about other people, disobeying our parents. All sorts of things that we know very clearly we ought not do. And yet, we do them just the same. And if you're struggling with disobedience, I just want you to notice in verses 4 and 5 that with obedience comes blessing. That's the main thing here, I think. Jesus told his followers not to leave Jerusalem... Because it was in Jerusalem that the promise of the Holy Spirit would be fulfilled to them. It was there that they would receive this new baptism, this fresh anointing of the Spirit's power. And so it behooved them to do exactly what Jesus bid them do and to be exactly where Jesus told them to be. And if we're wise, we'll take the same approach. We will learn to do precisely what Jesus tells us to do. And again, it's not usually difficult to find out what these things are. The disciples knew what it was because it was clear. Jesus had spoken, and that was the end of it. And it's not difficult for us either, usually either. I'm not, when I'm talking about obedience right now, I'm not talking about whether Jesus wants you to buy the Mazda or the Chevrolet or whether Jesus wants you to have your kids in this school or that school or the home school. Those things might be important, and they will require wisdom. But the fundamental issues of obedience come to us in black and white, don't they? Sometimes in red. They are commands that we've been given straight and clear in the word of God. And his commandments, the apostle John tells us, are not burdensome. The commands that God has given us are in and of themselves good for us. They're delightful when we actually obey them with a happy heart. And they lead to even more blessing. That's the point of this chapter. Their obedience led to blessing. And who knows what blessings God is waiting to pour out on those in this room who, like the disciples in Acts 1, will simply take God at his word and do exactly what he says. And then notice also that these dear people added prayer to their obedience. Prayer, verse 14. These all with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer. Well, that's another good word, isn't it? Another point at which we would do well to imitate these early believers. These all with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer. 
They seemed all the time in the book of Acts to be gathered for corporate prayer. They prayed together here while they waited for the promise of the Holy Spirit. They prayed together at the end of this chapter when it was time to select a new apostle. They prayed together when they were facing persecution in chapter 4. They prayed together when they needed to appoint deacons in chapter 6. They prayed together when they needed to appoint new missionaries in chapter 13. They always seemed to be having prayer meetings. And chapter 2 seems to indicate that the church in Jerusalem often held prayer meetings just because. Just because why? Well, that's what Christians do, evidently. They pray together. That's the mark of the Christian church in the book of Acts. One of the marks, anyway, is that they pray together. And I just want to encourage you not to miss the blessing of gathered prayer with the people of God. We pray together, of course, at these Wednesday night gatherings. But we also pray together on Sunday mornings at 9 o'clock. Just because. Just because that's what Christians do. We pray together. During those times, we generally reread one of the recent sermon passages and then allow the Holy Spirit to guide us in praying through many different applications of it. Then we break up into smaller groups, men with men and ladies with ladies, to pray about specific missionary and personal concerns. And I just want to urge you, if you're not enjoying that time already, to make your way here earlier this Sunday morning and join with the people of God in devoting yourselves to gathered prayer. And let me remind you also that gathered prayer can take place one-on-one with a Christian friend, and it can and should take place in your home as a family. I remember when I was telling you the story this past December of the mission of John McDonald, the Apostle of the North, to those poor and gospel-starved islanders on remote St. Kilda. I remember that one of the telltale signs that he saw that the gospel was taking root among the people was the sound between 9 and 10 o'clock in the evening of the psalms being of family prayers being said together and these things arising like incense from nearly every cottage in the village. It was a beautiful thing, and may it ever be so in our own homes as well. These all, with one mind, were continually devoting themselves to prayer. And look who was among them in verse 14. These all with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. This is the last time that we see Mary, the mother of Jesus, in the New Testament accounts. And some time ago I listened to some sermons about Mary And the Scottish preacher Kenneth Stewart remarks on this, her final appearance, as follows. Where is the greatest woman who lived? Greatest in terms of her faith and her privilege. Where's the greatest woman who lived? He he asked. We find her just at a prayer meeting. And that tells us something, I think, about how we should view Mary It also tells us something about how we should view the prayer meeting. And Jesus' brothers were there as well, which might be surprising to us because they hadn't always been keen to follow their older half-brother, and they had even stiffly criticized his ministry at one point. But here they are in the upper room, heads bowed among his disciples, and they're another reminder of the power of the gospel. Those family members or friends who right now think you're little more than a religious fanatic may someday come and sit down next to you at the prayer meeting. 
So keep praying for them and don't lose heart. So that's the second portion tonight. Waiting and watching. And then finally, let's have a go at verses 15 through 26, which we'll call Judas and Matthias. 15 through 26. At this time, Peter stood up in the midst of the brethren. A gathering of about 120 persons was there together and said, Brethren, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was counted among us and received his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the price of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his intestines gushed out. And it became known to all who were living in Jerusalem, so that in their own language that field was called Hakeldama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, Let his homestead be made desolate, and let no one dwell in it, and let another man take his office. Therefore, it is necessary that of the men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning with the baptism of John until the day that he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So they put forward two men, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all men, show which one of these two you have chosen to occupy this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they drew lots for them, and the lot fell to Matthias, and he was added to the eleven apostles. Judas and Matthias. And as we think about Judas... I want you to notice, particularly the words in verse 16, the scripture had to be fulfilled. In other words, the actions of Judas, his betrayal of Jesus and Jesus' subsequent arrest in the garden were not a curveball tossed in at the last minute. Jesus' betrayal did not catch, uh, Judas' betrayal, I should say, did not catch Jesus or his father off guard. These things were prophesied in the scripture, specifically verse 16, by the mouth of David. Peter, in fact, repeats some of David's words that have application to Judas there in verse 20, doesn't he? Quoting from Psalm 69 and Psalm 109. And also Jesus himself in John 13 quoted David speaking prophetically about the betrayal of Judas. He who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me, which is a quote from Psalm 41. Brethren, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David concerning Judas. And the scripture was fulfilled. The Son of Man is to go just as it is written of him, Jesus said in John 26. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. Woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. And we find out why in verses 18 and 19. This man, Judas, acquired a field with the price of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his intestines gushed out, and it became known to all who were living in Jerusalem. Now the fate of Judas that's recorded here in Acts 1 may throw you off a bit, because it sounds different from what we read in Matthew 27, 5, where we're told that Judas, after betraying Jesus, quote, went away and hanged himself. 
So the question is, how did Judas die? Did he hang himself? Or did he fall headlong in a field and his stomach burst open? Well, the scriptures say both. So both must be true. Likely, what we're to understand is that Judas hanged himself and died, and after some time his body decayed and broke loose from the rope and in its rotten condition burst open on the ground when it hit bottom. And so I just want you to picture Judas laying there in that field, his guts burst open on the ground, and his fate whispered, verse 19, all around town. Picture him for a moment. What a tragic end to come for one who has spent so long, so close to Jesus. And we need to beware of the same, because as is often preached from the example of Judas, proximity to Jesus and proximity to the gospel is not the same as living faith. Jesus, Judas had the first. He was even the treasurer of Jesus' ministry team, wasn't he? But he didn't have the second. He did not have living faith. And he went over the cliff edge of sin because of it. And we must, I say, learn from his tragic end. Surely the folks gathered in that upper room that day would have taken these things to heart and shuddered at the warning signals that were being emitted by Judas's rotten bowels. Many of them would have known him personally and would have been shocked and would have been warned, and we should be as well. You may have known someone who didn't end up exactly like Judas, but who went somewhat in the same direction and left the faith and died without the Lord. And you should be warned, and I should be warned, that it's not the same thing to be near the gospel as it is to believe it. Proximity to Jesus is not the same as living faith in Jesus. These early Christians were learning that. But they also had to move on with the gospel work and to be prepared when the Spirit came to be Christ's witnesses just as he had said they would be. So Peter, the natural leader of the group, moved quickly to appoint a successor to Judas, a twelfth witness to fill the number of apostles back out again. And I think it's important to notice here the criteria that he put forward for what this new apostle should be. Namely, in verses 21 and 22, he said that this new witness must be someone who has, quote, accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning with the baptism of John until the day he was taken up from us. In other words, this new witness wasn't going to be a new witness, was he? He was going to be someone who had witnessed everything all along. This new apostle that was going to be appointed in the place of Judas Iscariot was going to be an eyewitness, one who had walked with Jesus throughout his earthly ministry, just like the other 11. And it seems to me that this is another clear reminder of how much weight the early Christians placed on facts, how much weight they placed on evidence, on verifiable testimony. We spoke about this on Sunday, didn't we? And we find it here again. Christianity is not a religion of fuzzy, hazy religious myths, but of historical truths. That's what the early Christians were concerned about. And anyone who tries to portray Christianity otherwise hasn't carefully read his Bible or is reading it with a particular axe to grind. Anyone who claims that we can worship the Christ 
even if the historical Jesus never existed. Anyone who claims that we can serve and know and be blessed by the Christ, even though a lot of the things the gospel writers say about Jesus may not be true, anyone who asserts that we can still have a Christ without a historical biblical Jesus doesn't understand the emphasis of the New Testament writers because these writers are consistently concerned to give us not just some disconnected fables about a mythological Christ figure, but to record real flesh and blood history and to tell us that that's what they're recording. They're concerned to make sure we know that these are eyewitness accounts. And thus Peter's emphasis here in verses 21 and 22 that Judas's replacement be able to give eyewitness accounts. Christianity rises and falls with the factual historicity of the life of Jesus of Nazareth as it was taught and written down in the Bible by the apostles. The facts about Jesus as we have them recorded in this book must be true or we have no gospel and no salvation and no real Christianity. Paul said that famously about the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15, you remember. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. And we could say the same thing about so many other gospel facts, couldn't we? If Christ wasn't really human, if he didn't really come in the flesh, if he just appeared to be human but wasn't a man like you or me, your faith is worthless. If Christ didn't really die on that cross, as some like to argue, your faith is worthless. If Christ wasn't really born of a virgin, your faith is worthless. The facts of the gospel are vitally important. And the apostles understood these things. That's why they put so much emphasis on convincing proofs, verse 3, and on eyewitnesses, verses 21 and 22. And so as an eyewitness to add to the, 12, to the other 11 apostles and now make 12 again, they had two possible candidates, two eyewitnesses from which to choose in selecting the 12th apostle. First, there was a fellow with three names, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, verse 23, and then there was Matthias. Here's one of those situations where they needed to know what the Lord's will was and they needed to obey the Lord's will. But this is one of those times, like we mentioned earlier, where doing the Lord's will wasn't as black and white as obeying his direct command to stay in Jerusalem. How are they going to know what the Lord wants here? I want you to know, uh, note well how they decided which one of these men they would appoint as the 12th apostle they prayed verses 24 and 25 and they cast lots verse 26 they prayed and they cast lots now those two things may sound like they are mutually exclusive they sound that way to me in some ways if they prayed why did they need to cast lots i'm not sure i fully understand the answer to that. But what I do know is that while I wouldn't recommend us setting aside our next elders or deacons by drawing straws, these folks who were gathered in the upper room that day evidently did what they did in faith. 
That much I do know. And the reason I know that is because of the way that they prayed. That's the really important item in these final verses. Not the lots that they cast down on the table, but the prayers that they cast up into the Lord's hands. They prayed, verse 24. They were utterly dependent on the Lord in this decision. And so they turned to him once again in corporate prayer. Remember that. There it is again. The importance of God's people coming together to pray. But what I really want to point out before we close is that they prayed in faith. Listen to their prayer again. Verse 24. They prayed and said, You, Lord, who knows the hearts of all men, show which one of these two you have chosen to occupy this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. You, Lord, who know the hearts of men, show which one of these two you have chosen. Can you not hear in those words their confidence that God was in absolute control of all events? That God knows the hearts of all men? That God has already chosen Judas' successor? That he's got the whole world in his hands? And he will guide his church? Can you hear that that's what they believe? That's why they could then go on and cast lots between Barsabbas and Matthias and not apparently think it was strange because they knew that God was in control even over the throw of a dice. And with, again, again, without suggesting that the casting of lots should be the normal means of Christian decision-making, I do have to ask if you and I have enough confidence in the Lord that we really believe that he is ordering every minor detail according to his plan and that big decisions like the selecting of a new apostle can be made without fear because we know that God is in control and will hear our prayers and guide our hearts. Do we have that kind of confidence? Some of us, had we been there that day, might have had difficulty choosing between these two men because some of us have difficulty making decisions, don't we? Or some of us have problems maybe not making the decision initially but second-guessing our decisions once we've made them. Anybody like that? It's not necessarily a bad thing to be careful or even to have a healthy trepidation about making decisions flippantly. But I think that sometimes our fears about making the wrong decision may often just be a lack of faith in God's ability to make the dice fall out just the way he planned. Maybe we don't pray nearly as much as we should. Or maybe we pray, but not with the confidence of these folks in verse 24. You, Lord, know the hearts of all men. Show which one of these two you have chosen. Can you pray like that about the decisions that you have to make in your life? When two options come before you and you're not sure if you're supposed to go down this track or down this track, can you pray confidently like these people prayed? You, Lord, know the hearts of all men. Show which one of these two you have chosen. And then be able to go forward trusting that the Lord will not let you go down the wrong path. If you can pray like that, then there's no reason to be afraid that God will let you go the wrong way at life's crossroads. He is too loving, too kind, too wise, too good to do that to his people who earnestly seek him. 
He who did not spare his own son, remember? Romans 8.32, He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? All things, Paul says, including wisdom in making the right decisions. God loved you enough to give his son for you, to die for your sins. And do you think a God like that will now forget about you even after you've prayed for his guidance and leave you to make a decision that will ruin your life? That's not the God of the Bible, is it? I say again, he is too loving and kind and wise and good to do that to his people who earnestly seek him. So earnestly seek him. Pray like they did. And pray, and pray some more. Don't be flipping in your decision-making. Don't run ahead of God. Pray. But when you have prayed, say amen, and open your eyes, and go forward believing that the Lord really does have a chosen path for you, and that he will, as they prayed in the upper room, show it to you in due time. And then finally... Let me ask you if you're ready, like Matthias, to step up and be a witness to what you have seen of the Lord Jesus and what you have heard. None of us are eyewitnesses like he was, but we all have what the eyewitnesses said, don't we? Are we ready, like Matthias, to step in and say, I will go, I will speak? I will tell. I will be a witness. You shall be my witnesses, Jesus said. Let's make sure that we are among them.